Okay, um, hello, uh, good evening and welcome uh, everyone. It's good to see uh, a full house uh, on this uh, special occasion. My name is not uh, Stuart Corbridge. Uh, I wish I were the Provost and Deputy Director, but um, no, uh, no kidding now. Um, Stuart uh, uh, sends his apologies. Um, he's, he finds his two jobs of uh, Pro Director, Research, and Provost, and Deputy Director, it's actually three, uh, a little bit too much, particularly in this hot phase of preparation for the REF, the Research Excellence Framework. Now, if you have no idea what that means, consider yourself blessed. Uh, it's been a huge track on, on the rest of us. So my name is Eric Neumann. I'm the head of the um, Department of Geography and um, Environment. We're hoping to um, record tonight's event and make it available to the public. Is there a Twitter hashtag? Is there a Twitter hashtag? Well, I'm not uh, really a big fan of that anyway, so let's, <laughs> let's just um, uh, forget about uh, that part. Um, it would have been good to, to have Stuart, and he was, um, you know, many months ago when we set up this event, uh, extremely happy to chair tonight's event, because tonight isn't just any other uh, public lecture of the Department of, of Geography Environment. It's a very special uh, event. It's a very special event because Mike is one of the world's best and best known economic geographers. And tonight he is uh, talking about, of course, about this book of his, Keys to the City, which is really the culmination of many years of research into um, city and regional economic development. So it is a very special occasion uh, tonight. Mike has joined us in, let me just get this right, in 2000, is that right? I think it is, at least it says so on your website, got to check that. Uh, unfortunately we have to, to share him with uh, Sciences Po and uh, UCLA, but we have uh, a good part of him. Um, and uh, he is, you know, uh, not only an excellent teacher, but I think the students as well really love to have him uh, around and benefit from his incredible uh, knowledge of uh, economic geography. Uh, Mike was also a was elected a corresponding fellow of the, of the British Academy and he um, received the Regional Studies Association Sir Peter Hall Prize. I had to read this out just to get this, this um, uh, right. Uh, but foremost and above everything he is, as I said, just one of the best economic geographers in the world. So it's really a, a great honor um, to have him talk tonight about his new book. Without further ado, Mike, please, the floor is yours. Well, Eric, thank you for that uh, lovely introduction, which is kind of intimidating to live up to that best thing when there's a lot of, especially given that the room is filled with, I think, a lot of the best economic geographers in the world who happen to be, I happen to have the privilege to have as my colleagues in this department, which I think actually has the best concentration of the best economic geographers in the world. And I mean that for real, it's not just being Hollywood about it. Um, so I, I actually um, debated with myself how to present this book uh, because the book um, reflects uh, some, I would say, of my 
personal characteristics as well as those of the field. And my, the personal characteristics, I think, is that I, I'm, I'm trained as an economic geographer, uh, but uh, my career has been one in which I've felt strongly uh, involved in debates with what I would call uh, geographical economists, who I think are one of uh, the sort of close cousins of my field and whose uh, models and methods uh, I take very seriously on one side. And on the other side, um, another set of what I would call close cousins are economic sociologists. So, um, and actually when I went to graduate school, I couldn't decide what I wanted to be. So I switched between these three disciplines, which probably explains some of the mess I made of it subsequently in my career, and it's reflected in this book. Maybe a creative mess, I hope. So um, the, I also wanted to point out the cover art for the book, which independently of the content, I really like this painting because it's, done, it's by a man named Lucien Freud. And uh, Lucien Freud painted this uh, painting, which is named, it's a bit sexist, the title, uh, Man in Town. So we could call it person in town or human in town, but I like it because it sort of, if, when you see the detail, it sort of makes this, uh, it gets the flavor of what I'm interested in this book, which is the relationship, of course, between humans and their society and these strange things we call cities. Um, now, um, in trying to figure out how to present the book, uh, I'm faced with a challenge, and we're going to see if it works tonight in this talk, which is that uh, the book really is... Um, it's an assemblage, uh, a bunch of different chapters based on work that I've done independently and with uh, some collaborators, some of whom are in the department and some of whom are even in the room. And uh, a lot of these subjects are frankly, uh, they're, they're, they're furrows that are well plowed by researchers, myself but many others. Um, and I've tried to give my own take on each of the issues, but what I really want to do tonight is uh, emphasize what I think is one of the maybe more original aspects of the book, more actually maybe more so than the individual chapters, is uh, the flow and the interaction between them, or let's say the larger puzzle that they try to put together. So what I'm going to do is do the lecture as a set of sound bites on the chapters, and um, what I hope you will do is I'm going to make some bold assertions. There's a couple chapters I'll go into more detail on than others. There will be a lot of bold assertions that some of you in the room will know what I'm asserting and trying to get away with, um, but to try and see sort of how the flow is and what the interactions are. Um, so um, to start off with, though, uh, what, what's the purpose of the book? So my principal interest as a researcher is economic development. And uh, uh, economic development, in my view, is not the same as growth in output or in population, but rather by something that mixes all these things together and leads to improvement in the standard of living over time. That's a kind of a thumbnail definition of the, de the problem of development. And in, you know, in the aggregate, or it's very roughly measured, but you know, the scholars, we can all get into a big fight about exactly how well this is. As a, as a, how well this does as a measure. I like the measure of real per capita income in, say, a country or a region or like whatever geographical scale we're doing. And, uh, of course, in an ideal world, it would also include, you know, a lot of other things like 
how well the income is distributed and various kinds of things about the social structures attached to the income level like opportunity and quality of life and all that stuff. And you know, we, here at LSE, as in many other universities, there are people who work on those interactions and, and, and all that. But we know that the kind of that's the area that is, that is roughly uh, you know, the area of economic development. So why city regions? Well, okay, these are sort of banalities, but the planet is increasingly urban. It is increasingly so over time. You know, everyone throws around the recent crossing of the 50% threshold of humanity now living in whatever we call cities. Um, certainly, um, economic development is strongly uh, concentrated in cities. Um, uh, there, here's just some kind of, you know, back of the envelope stuff is about 75% of the world's economic output now is probably concentrated in city regions and about 60% in just 600. That sounds like a lot, but the planet's a big place. Um, and of course, for people who study cities and, uh, and economics, it's not just the fact uh, that economic development is in cities, happens to be located there, but that the economic development of the economy occurs through what happens in cities, right? So there's a double reason that we think cities are a composition of the development process and not merely an expression of it, in that, of course, um, what you know, there's, there's something about the, uh, the way that activities get organized in cities that affects their productivity, right? Um, so this affects how the economic system as a whole develops. So what's going on in cities is affecting the economy as a whole. And it's also that cities have a long arm in production and consumption. They affect what goes on outside of them very powerfully. They largely organize the rest of the world in economic terms. Um, when I say cities, I thought, you know, keys to the city in the title is just sexier than saying, you know, urban regions or city regions. Those are kind of wonky terms. When you say city, it sounds cooler. So the editor wanted it to say keys to the city. But really, really for, for, for most of us, I think, uh, we mean urban regions or metropolitan regions, right? That's the scale of meaningful, spatially dense economic interactions in today's world. And, you know, it goes back to the concept of functional urban region. And it also has, that's the territorial scale where you have strong effects of integration of product markets, labor markets, prices, uh, land markets, and things like that. So they're sort of scales at which the law of one price operates. Operationalizing that, you know, scholars can always fight about where the city, how far it goes but we, we know what we're after conceptually, and we know that it's the metropolitan region, right? Now, so now let's enter into the, 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 the kind of the heart of the matter. Um, and here's where I want to start a dialogue with economics as a starting point to my efforts. So studies uh, in urban studies, but especially in urban and regional economics, have uh, a very powerful set of what we might call structural determinant models, which are usually backed up by big-time regressions. Um, and what they show is, or what they endeavor to show, is how the drivers of growth, they switch over time. So that structural determinants of what make cities grow in general 
and make certain cities grow more than others are, are, are tr they try to find these things. So in recent times, those would be big things like uh, the spatial decentralization of manufacturing, but the continuing concentration of services, right? Or something about the general movement of population and activity from cold to sun or north to south in the world, right? And there's, you know, that's just kind of being, um, you know, uh, a bit flip about it. But these models are trying to get at what is the set of determinants of growth, right? Now, uh, and, and these, this is a good way in because uh, when you look at actual sets of metropolitan areas, we see that there's a great deal of turbulence in uh, the uh, spatial uh, landscape of, uh, of the economy, meaning that city regions go up and down in population, income levels, and rankings of uh, where they stand in terms of population and income and so on. So that's uh, the U.S. and uh, the U.S. is, I do a lot of research there in part because I'm there a lot of the time and because it's a really big urban system, so that's a really large sample size. Right, very convenient for a researcher. But what you get there is I took in that table, you get the top 10 uh, income, that's per capita personal income in 1970, and then you look at 2009. And what you're going to see there, of course, is how the rankings are all scrambled, right, over a several decade period. That's that things are happening to these cities and buffeting them up and down, right, and the economic system is doing that. And of course, the other thing that's going on in the, the third column is that they have widely varying uh, uh, combinations with the income, that is the qualitative performance, the actual quantitative aspects of their growth are wildly different, ranging from areas that lose population to those that, uh, that uh, say, um, more than double, well, about double. Okay, so. There are different ways that we can approach all those changes, right? So first of all, I think everyone who tries to do it knows that we are facing a very noisy social science problem. That means a huge amount of complexity, which is why it's interesting but also a little uh, scary as a researcher. So I, th I would say the hardcore of urban and regional economists, what they try to do as a strategy in their work is they push to expand these structural determinant models, meaning they want to get, they want to get the drivers identified and they want to see them in this uh, typically parsimonious way. That's always the economist word, right? We want to get it down to a few things that are really making this system go. The keys, as it were, are, are going to be pretty stripped down ones. And this is where a lot of intellectual energy in our field comes from. These are very uh, generally smart things that are going on. Now, the, what often happens, of course, is that the noisiness of the real world is so great that there's a lot of re-explosion of the complexity. The non-explained comes back, and what we tend to do is, uh, over time, we say, oh, well, we can't get that set of facts in, so let's check out this other parameter and stick it in and see if it helps us to get economic uh, income and population or the combinations explained. So some scholars respond to this complexity with add-ons. And then there's another group, what they do is they say, well, we'll actually kind of keep the, the, the kind of core vision of the field really narrow, but what we'll do is 
um, will try to understand variety by saying that you have basic structural things and then you have selection, what are called selection forces. So uh, this is where uh, like geographers tend to come in uh, and other disciplines. They say, yeah, but this case is different from that case, right? So uh, you have a basic model which says, for example, that uh, cities are switching from manufacturing to services. But I have three cases here where some of the cities that grew didn't switch as much to services as you know, your, mo your, your, your model with your big time regression says. So what I prefer is a, is a more like a layer cake where I'm going to say, I buy your basic story, but I think we have to add a lot of things to it. And that we have to like divide cities into subclasses in order to get from the general processes to the sp specific fates of urban regions. Okay? The problem that we get into in studying cities is that oftentimes, if you push that too far, what happens is then you go to this extreme where everything is a bunch of typologies and case studies and now we're not back to being able to say much that really seems to tell us about cities in general. So the noisiness of the problem that we face as people who research cities is finding some, re this is, I think this is actually pretty classical in social science in general, but applied to cities it really comes up with a vengeance, which is what's the right approach? What's the right way to get in somehow enough of the broad structuring forces that yield you enough of the textured empirical reality, and in this case, this is my geographer coming out, of real places. I want to know, for example, not just that London and New York are pretty similar, but I also want to know what's different about them and specific about London, and I want to do it without just going on and saying I have sort of, I have social science here and then I have description down here. So I'm kind of giving you what is a kind of an intellectual problem that I have as a scholar facing this. So my approach is actually to try and compromise between these two extremes by expanding the basics. That's what I, what I think I'm doing. And that's what I call the keys to the city, which are these four areas in which I think social science has worked hard on cities. So it's the economics, institutions, social interactions, and politics. And that's what I want to tell you about now. So these are going to be things of my expanded basic model, but it's not a model in a traditional sense of an economist model. And the book is organized around them. So there's four sections, right? Economic institutions, social interactions, and political context. And I try to sort of build a story by layering them on top of each other. So, I want to start out now and give you a bit more than a soundbite on this. That was the intro chapter, but the second chapter is where the big debate comes out in economics. And I think it frames really powerfully the interaction between, actually, it's not between uh, geographers and economists, but between two groups of economists, which makes it really interesting. And it's a classical debate in urban and regional uh, development studies. Uh, the classical paper, I think, in the U.S. is from the early 1970s. And it, and, it, and it asks a kind of a question. It says, if you have an urban and regional system that's changing, right, uh, what's the main motor force of, the, of big changes? So, for example, let's say, as in the case of the United States, you had a huge shift 
in population and jobs from the, the northeast of the United States to what is now called the Sun Belt. Okay? So from northeast, the, if you look at the country in 1970, uh, a, a high proportion of population and jobs and incomes are concentrated in the northeast. And if you look at it today, a much lower pro proportion of population is up there. The population has sort of flowed south and west, and massively. We're talking about, uh, we're talking about huge population and economic activity shifts. Now, this is big-time change as reflected in those numbers that I showed you. And the question is, and this is a, um, it's a, it's a chapter that I wrote based on research that I did with Tom Kemeny, who's sitting there in the back, um, is uh, what started this off? So what's the main force that causes a switch in the logic of urban development? And you can take this two ways. On the one hand, you could think of a world in which people, that means individuals and households, they get up and they move because something about the attributes of places is going to attract them to a different kind of place. And in second place, you put the movement of jobs. In other words, you say conceptually and historically that jobs follow people. Or is it the other way around? Is it that somehow the jobs, the logic of firms and where they locate is switches, where they somehow something causes them to go to different regions and the population follows, okay? And this is a clear division that you can see in the economics of the writings about the economics of cities. So lots of the uh, people who are out there, for example, Ed Glazer or Rich Florida in a more popular way, um, they tend to prefer uh, the vision of um, jobs follow people, that people move, they cause differential growth, and the jobs follow. In the new economic geography, I would say the, the, the opposite vision is uh, uh, at the core of it, which is that something about what we call trade costs, meaning the cost of the parts of the economy relating to each other, industry to industry or industry to market, change, that industries change their geography and that there are distinctive periods in which they change and that then people follow because they are searching for jobs. And these two visions are analytically different. They also lead to very different visions of urban policy and they lead, lead to very different visions of whether the uh, resulting spatial economy is economically and socially just or not. So it has a normative, it has different normative visions beneath them and different predictions about the economic outcomes. So a test case is the U.S. urban system since 1950, this movement from frost belt to sun belt. And the claim of the, uh, of the jobs follow people crowd is that people followed what they call amenities and low housing costs. So they said, um, that somewhere in the 19, starting in the 1950s, people began to search for better weather, being near mountains, or maybe in some models it's being near tolerance and creativity and cheap housing. And uh, they make a prediction. This is where we get to the core of the urban and regional economics field today, which is they predict that in the end, the population sloshes around the map the jobs follow them, and that the outcome is something you can measure. 
and you can measure it in the form of what they call the what, it's an economist term of real utility equalization across the map meaning that the real wages that people take home that means the wages they get paid corrected by their living costs and the amenities they get either the ones they buy like by going to the opera or to a nightclub or the ones they get free by having sunshine or mountains or lakes right that if you can calculate these and that at the end of the day what happens is that people are not better off in any place than another that they are equalized across the landscape so this is a very very strong theory in two dimensions it's a very strong uh, it has a very strong positive claim about the state of the economy and of course it has a justice claim a normative claim that basically it's a good system because what it's doing is allowing people to move in a way that allows them to satisfy different packages of preferences and to get them satisfied so everybody's basically pretty happy in the end now however the problem for me and here's where you know I can't do a lot of detail is my research convinces me that in the American case that is not a true story because what I see in the numbers for the United States since 1950 is that real wages are not equalized among American metropolitan regions that in fact the big cities and especially many coal cities still have better uh, paid jobs even after you correct for housing costs and they have better non-paid amenities than the Sun Belt and that there is actually higher total utility in some cities than others more generally as we all know there's a growing division of the skilled versus unskilled metropolitan areas and that's true of Europe as well as North America so and this is this is measurable in terms of the city regions that have more non-routine jobs and those that have routine jobs and this is something and we see it reflected in a geography of metropolitan incomes a kind of a new great divergence it's working itself out at different degrees of granularity but what I see going on is not convergence of either money incomes or total utility but divergence that basically you're better off in some places than others and that I don't see these things coming together so um, now here's the problem if that's true right then the problem is that most of the population seems to have gone in America to the places with lower real wages and lower total amenities or in other words it's as if the majority of people seem to be going to the bad places so this is something that Tom and I did is we took uh, and you can't see the slide really well but the, what we did is we took uh, with with a kind of a you know fair amount of fancy measurement tools we measured um, amenities we measured wages that were corrected by housing costs um, we put them all together we uh, so we showed we, we arranged uh, them into four boxes where you have high amenities on the two high boxes there and then you have uh, you have low, low income and high income there and the bottom line is that most of the Sun Belt metros where people are going to are down here and especially a lot of them are down there with low amenities and um, and uh, relatively low household income right so does that mean people are stupid I mean are they really is it a does can you really 
uh, explain the world by saying people made those kind of choices. And you look up there, and most of the metropolitan areas there are in the, either the Frost Belt or Coastal California, meaning that they're high amenity, high income places, but they didn't have very high population growth, except, now there's a couple of Sunbelt places there that are interesting uh, cases of development. But there's a problem, is that, that's the point. If you look at the evidence and you buy these kinds of numbers, there's a problem about human behavior and causality. So, it seems like that, mo in, in my opinion, what happened is people went to where the jobs are and rather than choosing, they accepted lower wages and even lower amenities, right? Now, some of this difference is in between, between your money income and, and your real income is reduced by lower housing costs in these places, but not all. So why would people migrate to these places? I think actually that that's where economic geography that focuses more on the productive economy, on the locational behavior of firms, primarily, firms and industries, comes in. And so one process is that the Sun Belt was initially, uh, initially it was shaped by the relocation of manufacturing from the north to the south. And this is critical now to thinking about causality. The mechanisms that set off this movement of jobs from basically the northeast to the southeast of America it were basically predate the factors that the jobs to people models tell us about. The jobs to people, they have articles and they say the things that really made the U.S. South develop were the motorway system, which is known as the interstate highway system in America, and air conditioning. Air conditioning made the climate more pleasant in the summer, so you could, have a good, you could have a good winter without suffering too much in the summer, the United States being a very hot place for the most, play, for the most part. And, uh, and, and this highway system making it possible for, uh, for uh, transport and trade to, to move uh, more cheaply. Well, the problem is actually that if you look back at history, the jobs start to move in mass before either of those things happened in the late 1940s. The U.S. Congress already commissioned special reports in the late 1940s on massive movement of jobs to the southeast of America and the highway system had not even been authorized to begin construction and air conditioning was not yet commercialized. So there's something wrong with the history part of it, right, that I think also is consistent with the numbers not adding up. And of course, I would say if you look at history that, the key, that there's a key incident and it comes from political economy which is that in 1947 the US Congress changed the labor laws and basically made it very much more difficult to have unions in the southern United States. It's called the Taft-Hartley Act and it's in 1947. And it creates a double, a two-sided labor regime in the United States uh, from 1947 onward. And then, of course, there's aid from the federal government. There's all kinds of things that go there. But the point is, it provoked this initial uh, switch in the, in the nature of uh, job location. And hence, that's what unleashed what, what would then become a set of circular and cumulative interactions that would lead to the rise of the Sun Belt. And that's, of course, jobs to people. People to jobs are ultimately the cumulative part of these things. But we're looking for what set the system off on a different pathway. Um, different things happen in coastal California, which is the other big element of U.S. spatial development. That wasn't driven by cheap labor 
or, uh, or the search for uh, low unions, it was driven by innovation. California is a, is a, is a, uh, a consistent over time development of innovative industries far away from the core regions of the United States that become their own attractors for people, such as entertainment, aviation, aerospace, space technology, agricultural capitalism, and information and communication technologies. And the people follow those jobs leading to California having had, on average, a higher unemployment rate than the U.S. for almost eight decades because people are always going there looking for the good jobs. Now, so that's my story. And, and in chapter two, it's really a way of opening up what I would say is subsequently an emphasis in the rest of the book on production, right? On, I mean, I, I'm now going to be, you know, lay my cards on the table that uh, I think that the economic geography of the productive economy is at the core of transformation dynamics. Ultimately, it is an interaction between people looking for things and, uh, and, and, and firms looking for people. But when you look for these major periods where things switch, it, you have to go back and look at what is the initial thing that throws the switch, and I think it's production. Now, that's where the new economic geography, which is a really strong element of our department here, comes in, um, because it, at its core, is what we might call the lumpiness of production on the landscape, and notably, the forces of agglomeration. Uh, Gilles Duranton and Diego, Diego Puga, Gilles used to be a colleague here, they wrote this great article where they summarized this fantastically complex field and said, basically, what industries do when they cluster in cities is they share, they match to labor, and they learn from each and, and people and, uh, and firms learn from one another. And so, I think we have, we have made enormous scientific progress in explaining the what of agglomeration processes However, there's a gap in our field, and the gap is about the where, meaning in general, we know why certain parts of the economy are urbanized and others are spread out. But those models can't tell us which city regions they're going to cluster in. And so, for example, it can't tell us why information technology is in San Francisco, finance in London and New York, entertainment in Hollywood. And these issues are typically relegated to history by economists, right? I mean, there's a lot of articles that say, that one, that's the effect of history, and I'm not going to go there, um, which is, um, which is a, a, a legitimate thing to do in certain contexts, but it's epistemologically not justified if what you're really interested in is the development of real places. You really want to know why, if you're in Boston or Los Angeles, you really want to know why you lost out in information technology and San Francisco got it, even though you seemed to be in the game in 1965, right? So I'll come back to this in a minute. Okay, so we'll come back to that because it goes, actually, it's going to be one of those things that you can't get from new economic geography and you have to be more expansive. Um, but I want to take up first now two other issues in the economics part of the book. So the first is about innovation, right? And there's a question that, uh, that we who study cities uh, wrestle with. And it's, you know, it, it has to do basically in sort of colloquial terms of why are cities so expensive, and especially some of them, and is it good or bad? Now, there's an ambiguity actually in urban economics about this. If you read uh, the technical literature, on, say, places like London, um, there's, always, there's a kind of an undertow 
uh, London and New York, one of these days, they're really going to get it. That means, that's, that refers to the notion in economics of mean reversion over places. That is, that there's some kind of great equalizing tendency that uh, as cities become congested, expensive, and so on and so forth, that they're going to basically drive away the forces that made them great, right? And they will be forced into competition with other places through the tendency of activities to leave them as they become expensive. And this will happen through the leaving of firms and the outmigration of people, both of those forces. So being expensive at some level is bad. I mean, technically being more expensive than your differential of productivity with other places. But basically it's a sign of some kind of disequilibrium and a problem, okay? Now, the new economic geography actually takes a somewhat different approach. That's a kind of a standard urban economics approach, right? And the tendency, like I say, of both the, the academic literature and the applied literature is, is, is basically to show why big cities that are expensive are always about to suffer from being expensive. New economic geography, which concentrates on the clustering of firms and industries, is different because it shows why incomes in some cities and regions really should be high because of this spatial lumpiness of the economy. Agglomerations that host highly innovative sectors that do non-routine work, they earn super profits, right? We all know this, they earn economic rents. And this is the learning or innovation part of the economy and it's known as uh, martial arrow externalities in some of the literature. It's a kind of a term that floats around there. I googled it when I was writing the book, and if you put in martial arrow roamer externalities, you get something like 225,000 Google hits on it. Okay, so it's a very common term. Now, we know that there's, there's truth to this because but since the 1980s, there's an extensive literature on the geography of innovation that shows that there's a lot of innovation in the world concentrated in cities. It's not evenly spread across the map. And we have actually a nice group of researchers in our department who we kind of do stuff on this, which is, which is nice. We're a good center of research on that. And again, there's this term that's uh, actually called Mar Externalities, three authors, Marshall, Arrow, Romer. Now, the problem is, though, that there's confusion about how what goes on in cities links to the broader economy. And this is a technical debate, but it's also a policy debate. So think about this way. If some cities were rich just because they were innovative, right, that actually might be bad for the economy as a whole. Why? Because these cities would simply be doing a holdup on the rest of the economy. They would be saying, I have something that you want. I'll charge you very high prices for it. And what I will do is hold up, because so, if you want it, you have to pay my costs. But there's another theory in economics that's invented by Paul Romer and then worked on since. What he says actually is that innovations, they work through the whole economy because they can be imitated and they accumulate over time. So there's a contradiction. In other words, if it's good for me in San Francisco that I'm innovative and I can hold you up and charge you high prices, then how can my innovation actually percolate through the economy because I'm keeping it to myself? So there's something there. And of course, the, 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 real, the real answer is that both these processes are occurring, but they're occurring in a space-time cycle. 
Cities innovate, then they get very wealthy temporarily from doing so, then the innovations leak out, and then they transform the whole economy. But if the city doesn't continue to innovate, its wages and prices will decline. Right? This is what happens through delocalization. Right? So the chip industry leaves San Francisco in the late 1970s and leaves Silicon Valley as it becomes commoditized. Right? So this leads to a tendency for there to be equalization of income over places and for the innovations produced in one place to benefit the whole economy, to benefit lots of other places through their firms and through consumption. So cities have to reinvent themselves they have to innovate in order to re-raise their wages and prices. And the reason, to give a, a Californian example again, that the Bay Area is still rich today is that it's not Silicon Valley version 1.0, it's Silicon Valley version 7.0 because they're in the seventh wave of innovation in Silicon Valley as they've lost the other ones to outward movement and imitation. So there's this kind of time-space back-and-forth movement between cities and the rest of the economy in spatial but also in economic terms. So what this leads to actually is that an interesting, I think, kind of view of how the economy moves forward. That it's mostly localized externalities or localized innovation processes that pump the growth for the whole economy over time, right? Most innovations come from city regions. But what they do isn't just about them, it's about how what they do subsequently leaks out. And so as this leak goes on, they transform the economy. And the implication, of course, is that the economy has two different tendencies. There are some periods where things are diffusing out of cities more rapidly, where places are becoming more equal, where the diffusion or imitation process dominates the creation process. But there are other, other moments in time when strong innovation is occurring and it's concentrated in cities. And that has a strongly unequalizing effect on incomes over places. We're living through one of them right now. One of the reasons for the great diversions today is because, as a whole, the economy is doing more innovation now than it was in the late 1960s, early 1970s, when an old paradigm of technology was exhausted and it was getting spread all over the landscape. But for the specialists, there's an important term. This term, mar externalities, is a really bad one because it rolls the two together. And what I argue is that you have two kinds of externalities that correspond to two parts of the economic process in time and space. One of them is about the urban, that's the MA part, and the other R part for the specialist is about the economy as a whole. Okay, um, fine, I'm behind, but I'm going to speed up. Um, I'm <laughs> Good bit behind. We want to have sort of 20 minutes in the end for questions. Oh, yeah, we will. Okay, that, that should be easily possible. Okay. So, all right, now we're going to speed up though because we kind of had to do those basics. Fifth chapter is about um, city regions and cities inside them. And of course, inside city regions, we have a lot of economic reflections, a lot of geographical reflections about how many agents like people and households and businesses and government how they compete for limited space and locations. And this is where, of course, you get a subdiscipline in our field, which is about land economics and real estate economics and economics of the built environment, and, of course, the allied discipline of urban planning, which is attempting to understand all this stuff and see how it all works. And we all know that the starting point is that land markets are unlike anything else in the economy, 
You can't expand the supply of land in a normal way. You can go up or you can do better transport, but you can't really you know, produce more land the way you can produce more pieces of paper, right? So usually you get very strong price allocation rather than supply allocation mechanisms. And when you have price allocating things instead of supply, you get a lot of competition and conflict over who gets what, okay? And it's a very different game. The jockeying for being in a city is very different from consumers trying to get a different kind of car or clothing or other normal things in the economy. And so how does urban space get reshaped? Given that it's a limited supply of locations, right, there's a lot of things that people look for when they try to get these limited number of locations. They could search for amenities, which they do, right, like a nice neighborhood. They could look for beauty, right, go to the nice neighborhoods that, neighborhoods that have a beautiful built environment from the past. They could look for the social environment, look for tolerant people around you. Right? So all of these things are big on the agenda of thinking about the rearrangement of things inside metropolitan regions today. Amenities, beauty, tolerance. Um, now unlike what we said for inter-regional growth, where I argued that amenities weren't very important, they probably are pretty important inside metropolitan regions. Because that's an area where you've already got your employment and now what you're doing is arbitraging once you've got the primary thing in your life worked out, which is your job and your income. Now, of course, the end of manufacturing in most of our big cities here in the developed world freed them to have a lot of nice things like amenities and gentrification and other things as drivers of sorting because you don't have a nasty manufacturing plant right next to you anymore. You can convert it into an art gallery, right? So a lot, of, a lot more amenities can emerge in our, in our urban environments. But does this mean that the problem of what people want is now solved by this moving around within cities of people and activities, right? And so we enter into another really interesting dimension of thinking about urbanization, which is the role of preferences and human behaviors in shaping cities. So do choices reveal preferences? Now we've got this reshaping of the urban landscape. And uh, there's a lot of people out there doing research on who goes where and the new shape of neighborhoods and the new sort of social mosaic uh, of our uh, urban areas. Um, now the problem, of course, is that preferences are actually only partially revealed by what we actually do in cities. Right? And this is the big debate that goes on, I think, often between geographers and sociologists on one side and economists on the other. Economists tend to say what people do is they vote with their feet. And we'll read back from that to say that's what people prefer. right? And by understanding those preferences as revealed by their behavior, we can understand what policy should do. I'm a little skeptical of that. I think there's partial truth to it. But actually, I think there's a serious problem in cities, which is that urban environments are bundles. So for example, uh, as um, Paul Cheshire in our department has shown, I buy a house somewhere because I might like the house and the neighborhood, but also I really want the schools. And actually I buy the house, not so much because I want the house, but because I want the schools more. So I might take more or less house than I want in order to get the schools. And I can't unbundle them, right? It's sort of like when I buy cable TV, right? 
I might watch one or two channels and then I get 298 that I never watch, right? But I don't have any choice because of bundling. And the built environment, the environment of a city is the bundle, you know, par excellence, right? So we arbitrage on what is immediately possible, on the bundles that are offered to us in the real world, not on what we would prefer to prefer, right? What we prefer is not what we prefer, what we would prefer to prefer. And so urban systems are actually massive uh, systems of what I would call preference frustration, right? And it's inherent in the nature of urban choices because you can't unbundle, separate, and rearrange exactly as you would like, at least not in the short run. So changing an urban environment takes 100 years, right? To renew this housing stock, it's a glacial pace in relation to the changes in our preferences. So there's a mismatch and a friction, right? That also means that preferences are potentially very unstable. That if something new comes along that creates a new bundle, there will be a rush to it with all kinds of externality effects that no one anticipated. So the real issue for policy then is to be adventurous but respectful, meaning you've got to figure out what bundles people would prefer to prefer and whether those bundles can be generated and at what cost and over what time horizon, right? And so I would actually say that oftentimes our urban policy is much too imitative of what they see in the real world. They say, okay, you know, I'm going to study to death what everyone's doing and then I'll give them what I want, right? But actually doing that in a funny way is, to, is actually to, in, is to insert the policymakers in the position of replicating the preference frustration that is hardwired into any urban system. And policy needs to be more imaginative in trying to figure out what the new bundle should be, not what the actual choices are and how to satisfy them. And there's a huge debate in urban policy about which of these we should do. Okay, so that's the economics. Now the rest goes much faster because the economics is the hard part of cities, right? Second part is institutions. And what I do is I look at the where of development. And I noted, that, uh, I noted before that all that I've said up till now doesn't tell you actually very much about the where of development. When you get major switches in the drivers of urban growth from one big pattern to another one, it's not going to tell you exactly which set of cities is going to win and lose, okay? Can't tell us why specialization, human capital are in certain places uh, rather than others. Again, classical question, why did Silicon Valley end up in, why did the new economy switch to, to San Francisco and not to, I don't know, uh, Cleveland or Houston or even Los Angeles, which was well placed to get it. Lots of other places, if you go back, Lots of other places had just as good endowments as San Francisco did in specialization, human capital, technological precursors, and a whole bunch of other things than did what would become Silicon Valley, right? Um, in labor, for example, computer engineering was a minuscule academic field. There was no specific labor force in Silicon Valley, uh, and so on and so forth. So, there's something about growth being endogenous and us not knowing exactly where it's going to happen. Maybe it's all accident. So that's another really scary part of studying cities, right? It is a lot, I mean, there's a lot of actually intelligent stuff out there that studies specific cities and why they grow and argues for very specific 
um, one-off events determining the fate of specific cities and regions, as opposed to big structural forces. So lots of, lots of very smart people say about the Silicon Valley case that it's because Hewlett and Packard and Fairchild happened to have a killer breakthrough in chip technology in 1970, and they just happened to be in what we now call Silicon Valley but that there were a bunch of other firms out there in other places, and if they'd broken through, it would have happened somewhere else. That's a possibility, but it has a huge implication for how we think about urban growth, right, and what we would do about it, because you can't really affect one-off events with policy, as far as I know. Uh, another really uh, current story is that uh, William Shockley, who was the inventor of the chip, uh, wanted to be near his aging mother, and he moved from the East Coast to Menlo Park, California, which is now ground zero of the venture capital industry, and his mom lived there. And he said that. So maybe that's what happened. So, th so the problem is, how do we deal with that um, in terms of research? And I argue, actually, that um, there's a combination of accidents and institutions, and that the accidents are impossible to model, but that institutions, on the other hand, probably are, you can't model them, but you can get closer. Now, so what do we mean by institutions? This gets into, I think, a really interesting question. If we, if we, if we advance the hypothesis that when you get major differences in the pattern of urban growth that are emerging, and that some places are going to capture positions in it better than others, right? So there's a game that changes, and now a bunch of cities are on the playing field and the outcome of this game is that some of the cities will be the high growth, high income winners and others will be the losers and the differentiating factor is their institutions. What do we mean by institutions, right? Well, most people conventionally think it's things like um, local and regional government because those are formal institutions, right? I don't think that's true. I think local and regional governments, they mostly control land use, which is a very indirect and ineffective way to guide or shape regional economic development. It doesn't, there, I don't see very much evidence that land use policy can affect uh, the long-term pattern of what a region specializes in. Um, I think amenities and quality of life are a handmaiden rather than a strong selection device. They have to be done, that is to say, to sustain growth, you've got to keep your, your environment reasonably nice, but they're not going to change the game uh, in, uh, when, when a major switch in growth opportunities occurs. So what do we mean? I think the question of institutions needs to be redefined. And I do try to do that in chapters 7 and 8, and here's where the economic sociology comes in. What I argue is that the principle institutions are not formal government ones or even formal organizations, but they're basically the social networks of the regional economies in question. And these are social networks that are hard to observe and hard to measure. So there's a whole bunch of different things, but I basically break it down in chapter seven. I say there's two levels to the problem. One is what kind of groups do you have? And there's an old sociological um, kind of interest in what are called communities or groups of the economy, kind of primary groupings. What kind of people do you have, whether it be social groups or economic groups? So first of all, you've got to know what kind of groups you've got. And secondly, that it, and sociologists call that bonding. 
And secondly, you have to know how they relate to one another, which is how might they come together and interact to make things happen in an economy in times of change. And that's what we call in sociology bridging. And there's a whole classical sociological literature on that goes back to uh, Durkheim and Weber and the greats who talk about versions of these concepts. So um, now um, you can actually measure these things for regions and sociologists are starting to do it. Now actually the implication of the empirical work on these kinds of things, and it's a limited empirical uh, 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 field, but it's, it's growing, is, is actually not as many urban planners would like to believe that we should have more centralized coalitions, that if only you could like get a really good network going that could really do things that somehow we'd pull out of the political um, paralysis that most metropolitan regions always seem to have and we'd get things done. And there's a kind of a, a practice field called the new regionalism that tends to have that as a view of things, okay? I actually think that um, there's, uh, that the serious literature on this questions that proposition. That, no problem, yeah, and that, that actually we know that if you have a, if you have a really big, single, powerful uh, coalition, you could just as well lead to a kind of a lockdown because a ruling group says, I don't want to change anything, right? That's a classical th uh, theme in, in political economy from uh, Manker Olson onward. So economic soci sociologists such as Paget or Walter Powell, they say actually it's about seeing the patterning of networks and how they sometimes shape the solution to economic transition problems. And they do this in whether or not they're able to facilitate the emergence of what they call new organizational forms in a region. And th that these forms are adapted to where the economic action is going. So they, they, they repose the question of change. They say, you've got, a, you've got structural drivers that are changing from, say, you know, manufacturing to services or old economy to new economy. And then the question is, the, the, the economies that will get, get ahead in it are the ones that are somehow able to make their firms and industries get the organizational forms that are well adapted to these domains of activities. And some economies will do it better than others. And that could be actually nations, but it could also be metropolitan regions. And so, how do they do it? Pa Paget and Powell and many others claim that it has to do with how well they transpose skills from what they already have into new domains and transform them and adapt them to new organizational uh, contexts. And they argue that the network structures are that you want, to, you want the network structures to not be too fragmented because you somehow have to have networks that draw the existing economy into new areas. But by the same token, they argue that um, you don't want them to be too centralized because, right, that would lock them down. There would be no interest actually in drawing anything anywhere if the existing networks can get everything, can survive. So what, what we need to do then as researchers when we look to this question of the where of development, and again, you could use this in comparative international development analysis, but you could also use it at the metropolitan level, is these invisible colleges of actors who bridge milieus and regions to make change happen or shake up existing milieus 
And there could be idiosyncratic or one-off dimensions of these things in the form of, you know, the great, the great man or the great woman of history who says, you know, I'm there at the right time and I'm going to make it happen. One of the classical, actually, articles in this is about Cosimo de' Medici's and reshaping the state in, in, uh, in Renaissance Florence, right? Being, getting it right, but almost in an unintended way. So that would be the sort of story of, uh, you know, Frederick Terman, the dean of the Stanford Business School, making Stan uh, Silicon Valley happen. But actually, that, it turns out, is probably not enough. Because even the best actor, if they're faced with the, 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 the networks that resist, will not succeed, right? Individuals don't make history alone. They make it on fertile ground. And so uh, what we're showing in, a, in another uh, research effort on LA and San Francisco since 1970 is that what we see in San Francisco's emergence into the new economy and Los Angeles's relative failure is that the network structures are dramatically different. Um, I think this leads, by the way, to a, um, a need to rethink policy. A bunch of us in this department, like uh, Ricardo Crescenzi and uh, Simona and Andres Rodriguez Poste and I, we've all worked on the reshaping of regional policy in Europe. And we all, I think, in different ways are arguing that there needs to be a much bigger institutional dimension to it, not only sort of growth determinants and a re-questioning of certain of the fundamentals, but also that you need to think about what you do to make development and that institutions are clearly um, a part of it. And I'm giving you a strong personal view of what I think those institutions are. But I would say, I would acknowledge that this is a hard one for policymakers to swallow. In other words, if I were to take this lesson to Brussels or to Washington or Sacramento or anywhere or downtown Los Angeles, I've actually done it, and I've said, forget all that other stuff. What you really need to do is reshape your networks. You get some funny looks from policymakers. I stick to my point, but it's a hard one to sell. Okay, and I admit it. Okay. Um, now, toward the latter part of the book, I actually go over stuff that I think a lot of people know, which is that the core function of cities is that they're interaction systems, people, firms, and other things. Um, but the question is, um, what's this interaction about today? So, so I take up a, a, a three different topics there. One is um, technology and globalization and typographical errors. Um, technology and globalization and why they go together. Um, first of all, that there's a paradox, Gilles Duranton and I worked on this, which is um, it's a paradox about trade costs in the world, which is actually that even though it's a lot cheaper to ship things around the world and to make information flow and to even move people, that actually in a lot of areas our trade costs are rising. And this is actually a very important point for people who work on cities and the future of cities. And that's because there's a feedback loop. The feedback loop is that when you make transport of anything cheaper, what it does is it enables us to do more complex things, to import more, to export more, and, and notably to bring things together, recombine them, and make new and complex products. And a lot of that's done locally. And so the core, the core lesson of this kind of work is that every time that you see literature in uh, it's sort of empirical literature which says uh, transport and telecommunication costs are tending, are tending towards zero. It's going to be the end of cities. That they've always been wrong. They've been wrong up till now. 
And of course, what they always say, no, but this time's really different. This is really the end of metropolitan density. It's really diffused globalization. And I think actually that, no, it's wrong. That there will always be a feedback effect of generating more complexity and that complexity generates high costs of interaction. And when you have high costs of interaction, you get together in geographical space, and that's urban. And that's actually what we observe in the evidence. So the world isn't actually tending to be more flat. Um, second aspect of this interaction that I take up in chapter 10, see, we're almost done, uh, is that there's a dark matter problem, okay? And this is really getting into what, and it's something what I call the genius of cities. Um, one of the things that interests me that looks at real specific patterns of development is that um, when, you, when you drill down to the level of particular, you can do it at national economy level, but you can also do it at city level, which is that cities, no matter how much exchange of information and people and, and knowledge there is, they're different in what they do economically. So, um, you know, German cars made in Munich or Stuttgart are different from cars made in Detroit. Um, fashion made in Paris is different from fashion made in Milan, right? Finance done in Manhattan is different from finance done in the city of London, and so on and so forth. And this is really where you get an extreme uh, sort of finely grained patterns of specialization. And there's something about understanding them that mostly escapes our models of them. It's really hard to figure out what this is all about. And it has something to do with what I would call the dark matter or the local context. And I make some suggestions in this, um, in this chapter that the thing we need to look at more is actually what I would call the local behavioral context. Now if you put, you take the same engineer and you take this person and you divide them and you stick the engineer, half the engineer in Stuttgart and half the engineer in Detroit, that the engineer will start to emulate differently. No matter how much formal training that engineer has gotten to be the same, that person's going to end up being pulled into a collective system of, em of emulation, of following cues, of learning, that will give her or him a different experience and will drive the local economy down a slightly different pathway. And this, even in a world of a lot of knowledge exchange, there's something about local redifferentiation that's going on. So I call that the context and local genius. Chapter 11, I just reprise a model of face-to-face -face contact that I developed with Tony Venables, where we argue that face-to-face -face contact is a particularly effective method, not only of coordination, but also of motivation and socialization and that all the technology in the world has not replaced it with telepresence and is unlikely to do. So in those three chapters, it's about this interactional context, which is one where I, th I think we could summarize and say it's about complex feedbacks between technologies that enable us to, to uh, interact over long distances and what happens locally, and the local isn't going away. Final part of the book is two chapters on what I would call the political context. So, uh, political context is about um, some kind of, we might say, again, resistant ele elements of urban difference and urban systems that resist uh, uh, what, what we say in formal economics. One is about the shape of urban systems. They're still pretty different. Um, 
There are a lot, there's a lot of very powerful literature in economics about the regularities in urban systems, right, and that predict how population and economic activity will assemble themselves into a certain number of cities and a certain size. I think some of that is, it's okay up to a point, but I also think there's a lot of, so many places that differ from these models that I've tended to be a bit skeptical about how, how useful they are in the end, right? How can you compare the German urban system to the French one? Usually what we do is say there's a normal model except that the French deviated from it because they have a big capital, right? Or the Mexicans deviated from it because they have a, their capital is too big. I personally don't find that acceptable. I think actually that um, these are kind of hardwired in because of politics and that you have to put the politics in the model and say it's not that the politics is deviating from what it should do, it's just that different societies develop their politics and have a different taste for decentralization or centralization. You've got to put that right back in the center of it. And what I argue actually that that stuff then becomes what we might call endogenized into what we might call spatial habits of different societies. And I particularly study the American case there. I compare the European and American systems based on some work that uh, Ricardo Crescenzi and I did to, and, and Andres Rodriguez Poste did. There's some really interesting differences between North American and European urban systems that don't go away. That how people move, how they interact between cities, how cities economically interact, they're not the same, and we're not in a world of perfect convergence of these systems because the city form becomes imbricated in the human behaviors and reproduced. It's not just about um, comparing uh, the economic incentives, but you have to look at how it works into um, the urban. Okay, and then final chapter is about justice. Okay, so what I did is I, I sort of take it all together and um, I ask, uh, you know, what do we do with all this in terms of thinking about um, policy? And in particular, um, we, we, know that, um, we know that in economics now we're faced with a really interesting core question. And the bottom line is this. Um, the, the, whatever political system you have, the world tends to uh, drive a lot of development and a lot of income into a small number of spaces. And that leads to this current great divergence in incomes between places within countries and between them. It's a lumpy landscape of uh, wealth, activity, and income. And so, is that, a, is that a good situation? What do we do about the other places that aren't the winners in this system? And what do we do about the less successful cities? Should we, for example, is it, is it just to want to spread the development out, make everything equal by force? Is it better to, say, try to promote development everywhere? Um, should rich places help poor places? These are the core questions that underlie almost every um, kind of a policy question. Should you promote the mobility of people rather than development of places? There's a whole set of questions that runs through our field and is about justice. And what I do in the chapter is I argue that um, we, we need to consider different theories and how they give us different ideas of justice. And I won't tell you what they all are, but I list them there. I look, I look at how new economic geography, market failure theories, public choice theories, liberal theories, what they would say about justice. And the 
conclusion I come to is that they all have really interesting things to say and I would recommend that if you're interested in the normative and political dimensions of cities and development, you should look into these things and ask yourself which, of these, which justice criterion do I have as my value set? But that all in all, when you bring them all together, you see, well, there's really a lot of good ways to do this. There's not going to be one perfect optimal justice. And so what you really have to do is admit that it's going to be messy and admit that you'll never have an optimum and do what Amartya Sen calls for us to do, which is um, abandon the search for perfection and instead look for what we might call a social choice process. The social choice process is where we get to talk about it and that the role of the researcher, I'm arguing here, is, and this is our community of researchers, is that what we need to do is develop information to have better social choice debates. But what we shouldn't be doing is telling the, the, the public, I have a model that shows optimally first best what the world should be like. But rather that what we should do is say it's really messy and noisy. So going back to my starting point, you can't, the, the noisiness of development itself has to be reflected in what we, the research and policy community do, which is we have to develop noisy options for people. Noisy and messy, I'm actually arguing for. Not clean, right? That, cl that clean stuff coming out of scholars who emphasize policy is actually kind of tyrannical, okay? That it runs roughshod over the reality of the world. But that we can actually be scientists in it and develop much more adult kinds of questions for the public and say, let's have a messy debate about a messy issue, but at least we'll, at least we'll give you the ability to debate these many faceted trade-offs. And so that's what I do in the final chapter. So that's it. That's the four keys. It took me longer than I thought, but geography, institutions, innovation, and politics and justice. It's a big story, but I hope it's uh, at least has some interest in its, in its bigness. Uh, well, that's been uh, a tour de force. It is a big book, and it's been a big lecture. I must admit, my, I had, was close to a heart attack when five past seven we were still at chapter two, knowing that there are 13 odd chapters, uh, but we made it. Uh, we will have just about time for maybe one or two rounds of questions. Very short questions, please, and the question is something that ends with a question mark, i.e. not statements or short lectures. Can I see hands, please? One, that's two, and three. Can we have uh, mics there? And if I have another question, uh, another round, I go upstairs. Yes, please. Does, do the cities in the north of England need HS2? Did you get that? Need the cities in northern England need HS2, high-speed train. Got it. Another question here. Mike here. What would be your uh, policy prescription, or what would be the noisy set of choices for Detroit? Say that again, sorry. What would be the policy choices for Detroit and regenerating for Detroit? Detroit? What to do about Detroit? Can you please use the mic? It's recorded. Right. Yes. Subject certainly. Now, one thing what we could say about cities is that cities are stimulating places. 
stimulating creative, innovative places. And I think that is the attraction of the cities above all. Uh, would you agree? Thank you. You can come here or stay there, sure. whichever way you like. Well, I can sit. Okay, so okay. High, I'm not an expert on uh, high speed two in England, but I do know what happened in France when we built the TGV system, which is that uh, the predictions that were made by actually policymakers and lots of modelers was we're going to build this system and how it will share the wealth among the regions. The uh, results are a little bit um, at variance with that in that um, the TGV system in France, it's really pleasant. I mean, as a consumer, I love it. It's a great way to get to your country house if you happen to be one of those people <laughs> who has one. But in terms of, it's had an extremely centralizing effect on economic development in the Paris region. So you have to think about that. And that doesn't give you an answer. I would say actually you need to have a social choice debate about it because you've got two sides to the, to the impacts and you need to present it to the public in an adult way, right, rather than infantilizing the way policy debates often do. Detroit, um, so the problem with Detroit is of course that it's now so far down a road to abandonment that it's really hard to know what to do about it now. But certainly things could have been done about it prior, way back. And the big problem as we know is that Detroit's political coalitions failed. The, 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 the outward movement of the automobile industry is an, kind of like an economic uh, fatality or destiny thing. It's pretty much hard to stop that kind of thing. Although we have a minister in France who's saying that he can stop it. That's really interesting, right? Uh, um, but um, had, had one um, gone back to Detroit at the time that Boston was in crisis and done what Boston did, which is Boston set into place a political coalition under the aegis of its governor in the 1980s, Michael Dukakis, and he brought different people together and said, maybe we won't fight each other to the death and destroy our city. Detroit never had any of that, and the result is where you get today. Today, it's an extreme case. Um, innovation and creation, of course, cities are innovative and creative. Um, they're all, you know, they have a lot of other dimensions to them. Um, they're not uniquely innovative, I mean, the, the world is innovative and creative, but cities are pumps of innovation. Yes, there's no question about it. Okay, let's have another round of uh, questions. Anyone upstairs would like to ask a question? I'm all for diversity and equality. Well, if I have no takers, any, anyone down here? Yes, first question here. Any other one second over there? feel like at an auction and third here. Hi, is the uh, migration trend in the United States still towards the Sun Belt? And uh, maybe, are the numbers maybe skewed today with baby boomers aging and going, you know, f looking to retire in those communities? Okay, good question, yeah. Then we had one, why don't we take first here and then we, no, it was here, the gentleman here. You gave the example of uh, the West Coast in the United States pre-Second World War. But one of the driving factors could have been prohibition and gambling. What, what do you reckon about that? Okay, was well, prohibition and gambling part of the story of the move towards the South? And then the gentleman over there. Just wait for the mic, please. Uh, 
Thanks very much for that. Uh, I'm very sympathetic to the, the social choice and deliberation arguments that you're putting, but there's a fundamental question, I think, around scale and at what scale do regions not have the administrative and process and governance capability to actually make that work? Okay. Save five minutes and then we'll okay. probably come to so, a So um, migration in the US, um, I'm not entirely sure and in part because the Great Recession <coughs> has of course scrambled a lot of the migration tendencies and, and tended to make people, if I understand some of the numbers, uh, less mobile, right? Because simply there aren't that many jobs to go around. Um, whether that's a temporary interruption of a long-term trend or some structural switch, again, I actually don't know. Uh, the um, the migration to the U.S., the population growth in the U.S. South in recent decades has been much greater than it has on the West Coast or in the Northeast, that's for sure. And we'll have to see what happens after this recession to see if the game has changed, right? But it's also true, and here's the tricky part, is that, um, and this is, I think, where some of the models don't work very well, is that within these regions you get a high level of variance. Right, so even on the West Coast, San Francisco versus Los Angeles, in the Northeast, say a Cleveland versus a New York, they're very different. So it's also what are the drivers, right, as well as what is the geographical pattern. Um, the West Coast and gambling and prohibition, um, and there isn't gambling actually in very much of the United States that's legalized. It's one, I think it's two states, it's Nevada and uh, New Jersey, uh, but, and prohibition was national. So I'm not sure how it would generate a regional effect. In okay, so differentials in enforcement. I'm, I'm not sure. Frankly, I wouldn't. I, I, I just don't. I don't think it's going to be that powerful as a generator of. I mean, people moving to get. Basically, you're saying people are moving to get. Liquor, uh, <laughs> but I think it's pretty widely available legally or illegally and throughout the period, including today where a lot of the South, remember, has what are called, I don't know, I mean, non-Americans, this sounds very weird, but there are parts of the American South that still have what are called dry counties, even today. Okay. So you get a sub-state policy where you go from one little place to another and the, and the liquor rules change and the South is because it's much more conservative has a lot more of these, you know, liquor, liquor banned places, but people move to them. So maybe, I don't know. Uh, okay. Huh? Okay. I, I don't know. I mean, for me, it's hard to add that up to, to a big picture, but I haven't done research on it. Okay. And then administrative capacity. I think this is actually a really good point. Um, one of the interesting things, right, is that economic development happens at the scale of metropolitan regions, but there are basically no metro regions in the world that have agencies that are charged with long-term economic development and that are regional in scale, right? And you've got, you've got a million little agencies that say, I'm doing economic development. Mostly what they're doing is land use regulation, infrastructure development, and a variety of business incentives. But none of them, at least in the cases that I know well, 
are charged with the central task of what we would call economic development in a more classical sense, which is developing the productive forces in a, in a desirable way over a medium-run period of time. We have them almost always, with varying degrees of effectiveness, at national scale and almost never at regional scale. At regional scale, we have a huge patchwork of authorities. Generally, none of them are charged with this. They're usually competing. They're usually contradictory. So there's a really interesting question of an administrative void in the area of regional economic development and a kind of a false, like a false labeling. We, when we did our research on Los Angeles and San Francisco, we, we actually empirically looked at all these agencies that say they're doing economic development and found basically none of them that are doing what we really think is economic development. So that's pretty fascinating. Okay, well, I, I could have listened to this for a lot longer. It's a very uh, fascinating talk. Unfortunately, we have to uh, stop here. Please join me in giving a very warm applause.